and well met. Park your ass and I'll get the broad. As mentioned at the end of episode 60, there was a lot of interest in the Arctic after the First World War, and the bulk of those turning their attention north intended using aircraft to overcome all that bothersome slogging and frostbite and dying of malnutrition previous Arctic exploration featured in spades. The idea of flying over rather than sledging across the ice fields wasn't as new as the technology that actually made it possible. Thomas Jefferson predicted the balloon flight would see the first humans pass over the geographic poles in the 18th century. In 1897, Swedish engineer Salomon August André set out from Svalbard with two companions, Niels Strindberg and Knut Frankl, aboard a hydrogen balloon, intending they should drift across the pole and onto Russia or Canada, depending on how the winds played out. André thought he'd solved the problem of balloons going wherever the wind blew them with a system of drag ropes suspended below the balloon to trail along the ground or through the water. I don't know how he got his engineering degree, if that thinking stood as a fair representation of his understanding of mechanical principles, but his conviction convinced enough people to get the funding, the companions and the ground crew to Svalbard in 1896, resulting in a failure to launch, and again in 1897, where the untested balloon he named the Eagle took André, Strindberg and Frankel aloft and northward. The balloon wasn't sufficiently well sealed to hold the hydrogen needed for the proposed 30-day drift, and ice forming on the envelope helped dent what lift the diminishing hydrogen provided. After three days, the Eagle came down on the ice, and the three men, none of them selected for their survival at high latitudes prowess, didn't fare well from then on which in the Arctic translates to dying horribly. In 1909, New York journalist Walter Wellman thought he had the polar nut cracked with his hydrogen-filled French-made dirigible. A dirigible is like a gas balloon with the added excitement of petrol-driven engines directly below the large gas bladder so you can play with flammable liquids and spark plugs in close proximity to the hydrogen. Dirigibles are steerable in light winds, and that's about the nicest thing I have to say about them. With a crew of three and ten sled dogs, Wellman launched his derisable dirigible from Danes Island, the second aerial attempt Wellman made on the North Pole, having been thwarted at Svalbard two years earlier by poor weather. And his third attempt overall, the inspiration for his polar flight coming to him in 1894 during a failed attempt on the pole using sledges. As with Andre's designs, Wellman had two drogues by which he intended keeping in contact with the ground. Comprising long leather tubes, each weighing 1,200 pounds on account of being stuffed full of survival gear, these were supposed to... Uh, <clears throat> I don't really know. I don't understand these designs at all. Anyway, 30 miles after launch, one of the drogue tubes broke away and the dirigible, suddenly lighter by half a tonne, shot upward. The men reacted to the unexpected ascent by venting gas, and they probably opened a valve to let some hydrogen out of the dirigible too. Wellman steered back toward Dane's Island. En route, they spotted a steamer and dropped a line to it, by which the sailors drew the aircraft alongside, at which the crew and their dogs sensibly alighted from the America, which was then caught by a gust of wind, broke away from its tether, rose to 6,000 feet and popped due to Boyle's law. On returning home, Wellman learnt of Admiral Robert Peary's claim on the pole, and that he could have saved himself a lot of bother by not bothering. Amundsen also recognised the possibilities for polar exploration that flight opened up. 
He first saw heavier-than-air aircraft in flight over San Francisco during his post-South Pole lecture tour in 1913. Besides offering logistical support to exploration, he saw how much aviators fired public imagination. Aviation offered scope to kick a lot of what he'd learnt so painstakingly about skiing and dog sledding into a cocked hat, while also keeping the public emotionally engaged in his activities. Amundsen learnt to fly, gaining the first civil pilot's licence in Norway, and ordered two US-built biplanes with 50 horsepower engines. Look, to an aviation enthusiast that's going to sound unsatisfactory, but believe me, no one is more frustrated by not knowing what airframe is under discussion than me. So please, aviation buffs, understand that I did my best to find out everything I could about Amundsen's aircraft. Whatever they were, they don't loom large in Amundsen's story, because the Fram voyage on which Amundsen planned to carry them northward got delayed into 1915. Amundsen sold the planes, still in the USA, and went scouting for machines more local to Norway, selecting a French-made Farman biplane. As the First World War kicked off, the Fram voyage fell off the table indefinitely. Amundsen donated the Farman to the Norwegian government. In 1916, Amundsen announced a plan to enter the Arctic from Alaska. The Fram, moored up in Christiania, still a decade away from reverting to its medieval name of Oslo, was showing its age, owned by the government and historically tied to Nansen, who was kicking ass as a diplomat and statesman at the time, negotiating deals to ease food shortages forced on Norway, neutral throughout the war, but cut off from international trade by it. After the war, Nansen played a role in establishing the League of Nations and the repatriation of half a million prisoners of war and refugees, but that's another story. Amundsen decided to source a new ship. Shipwright Christian Jensen constructed the Maud, named after Norway's Queen, along roughly the same ideas as Colin Archer applied to the Fram. Semicircular cross-section through the hull ensured the ship would ride above any ice that caught it and half-metre-thick hull skinning would provide strength and insulation. The hull shape made for horrendously uncomfortable motion in open waters. But comfort while sailing in open waters wasn't part of the design brief, and the moored proved itself an eminently capable Arctic vessel. Leon Amundsen helped fund the build with an issue of stamps and postcards that people could send north with the ship, a deputised postmaster cancelling them while as close to the North Pole as possible. Amundsen again looked for avenues by which to incorporate aviation into the voyage, but the war was making European aircraft manufacturers too much money for anyone to turn their attention to a one-off civil airframe. Amundsen shifted his focus to a departure from Norway, curtailing hopes of capitalising on the publicity available in the USA, but the war again prevented him getting any airframes. German attacks on civilian shipping, including Norwegian vessels, prompted thought that invasion might lie in the offing, and any aircraft already in Norway were nationalised for defence purposes. Veterans of past voyages with Amundsen, Helmar Hansen, Oscar Wisting, Martin Ron and Knut Sundbeck joined the ship. Carpenter Peter Tessum and able seaman Paul Knutsen and Emanuel Tonneson hadn't sailed with Amundsen before, though Knutsen had wintered above the circle in the Kara Sea aboard the Eclipse in 1914-1915 under Otto Sverdrup noted as previously sailing on the farm with and without Nansen in past episodes of Ice Coffee. Newcomer, Harold Sverdrup, carried out the scientific program and while he doesn't feature in Antarctic history directly, 
His career in oceanography did a lot to advance our understanding of the propagation of tides as Poincare waves, and in developing a model of oceanic circulation, accounting wind-driven gyres, Coriolis deflection, and coastal bathymetry, which he tested through extensive data sets developed off the coast of California during his time as director of the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. As far as I can tell, Harold Sverdrup was not directly related to the Otto Sverdrup mentioned earlier. While it's not part of the System Internationale, Harold Sverdrup is honoured by the Oceanography-specific unit for measuring rates of flow in oceanic currents, the Sverdrup, one Sverdrup being equal to 1 million cubic metres of water per second. The moored sailed in June 1918. US-supplied intelligence put the U-boat menace out of the North Sea at the time. Probably. But the voyage to the White Sea was a tense one, as the psychological power of submarine warfare relies on the fear caused by not seeing something you would expect to not see. During the three years the Maud spent in the Arctic, Amundsen broke his shoulder in a fall down the gangway, received a mauling from a polar bear that left him with some gouges in his back, and only just saved himself from carbon monoxide hypoxia when using a kerosene lamp in a small laboratory. Peter Tessem, ill through the long winter and eager to head home, and Paul Knutsen, experienced at travelling and hunting in the region after his time aboard the Eclipse, took mail, copies of the scientific data, and six of the twenty sled dogs and a year's supply of food to head out to a Russian outpost at Dixon, 650 kilometres away, while Amundsen applied explosives to try to free the moored from the ice and make headway through the leads opening up as the 1919 summer progressed. When Roald Amundsen got a telegram out to his brother Leon the following March, Leon initiated a search expedition, coordinated by Otto Sverdrup, as no word of the overlanders had yet come to him. The schooner Hyman headed to the Kara Sea, but couldn't get anywhere near the area of interest, due to the heavy sea ice. A Russian-led expedition found a message can, indicating the two men were travelling well and with ample supplies in hand, then an overturned sledge, then a corpse wearing Peter Tessum's engraved watch. A geological survey operating out of Dixon in 1922 found another corpse and the mail and scientific data from the Maud within sight of the outpost. Amundsen, on learning of the deaths, counted this as the only tragedy among all his years in exploration. The Maud pushed on, eventually reaching Nome, Alaska, in July 1920, the second vessel to transit the Northeast Passage. After two winters and with little achieved, Helmar Hansen, Martin Ron, and Emanuel Tonneson left the Maud. With Alaskan sailors asking too high a price for the Norwegians' tastes, only Amundsen, Visting, Sverdrup, a Russian sailor, Gennadij Olonkin, and an Inuit cook called Mary departed Nome aboard the Maud to attempt a northward drift. Five people to operate a three-masted ship. The ice once more gripped the Maud to the north of Siberia. The crew dropped to four when Amundsen, frustrated at the years of inactivity and the gradual erosion of his fortune that they represented, spat the dummy the day the ice damaged the Maud's spare propeller, the main propeller already being damaged. Amundsen and Visting headed south with the dog team, reaching East Cape. Amundsen sailed for Seattle to make preparations for the Maud's arrival and repair, leaving Visting in charge of the Maud. Visting hired six Chuchki to help the now desperately shorthanded ship operate and returned to his command. 
In Amundsen's absence, the Norwegian government voted the expedition funds to refit the moored, and while this relieved Amundsen's considerable financial concerns, he felt done with ship-based exploration and headed to Norway to secure further funding to see his aerial exploration dreams come true. Visting brought the moored, with a 400km tow assist from a US inspection service ship, to Seattle and spent a winter there during which the local shipwrights carried out repairs and refit. Amundsen returned to the moored with a Curtis Oriole aircraft, gifted by the manufacturer for the beneficial publicity likely to arise if the aircraft performed well in its role. Pilots Oscar Ondahl, Odd Dahl and aeronautical engineer S. Sievertsen joined the crew to operate the aircraft. Amundsen also sourced a Junkers Larsen F-13 monoplane from the company's US representative, John Larsen, for use in a newly proposed 3,200km flight between Barrow and Spitsbergen. The airframe, if working in tip-top condition and carrying extra fuel tanks in the fuselage, was just capable of pulling that distance off, and the spectacle of such an endeavour spoke to Amundsen who never gave a toss about science and no longer pretended to since he was no longer trying to carry Nansen's favour. He still needed the moored to carry out research in order to justify Norwegian government funds invested in the project and he tied the proposed flight to the scientific rationale as a reconnaissance mission that would inform the movements of the ship. Leon came up with the bright idea of carrying mail across the top of the world as a fundraising scheme, printing up postcards marked North Star Air Post some of them carrying a misspelling, likely a deliberate attempt to increase the value, error collecting being a niche within a niche in the philatelic fold that occasionally prompts stamp designers to make deliberate mistakes to generate expensive rarities. The Junkers crashed during a heavy emergency landing after the engine failed en route to join the moored in Seattle. A second Junkers was sent as a replacement, this time in boxes carried by train so eager was the Junkers company to associate itself with Amundsen levels of exploratory success. The Curtis and Junkers airframes applied vastly different approaches to getting airborne. The Oriole followed on in the mould set by manufacturers during the war. Two fabric covered wings held in relative position by lots of struts and bracing wires. The laminated wooden fuselage, while unusual, wasn't a new concept. Junkers began building all-metal airframes in the final stages of the war, but the F-13 was the first of its kind in that it was a monoplane with no wing bracing. It looks oldie-worldie now because of the corrugated metal used to add longitudinal strength to the structures it skinned, but it was a clear departure from the norm and incorporated many design features still in use today. The moored headed north, depositing Amundsen and Olmdahl at Wainwright in Alaska, where they intended using the Junkers to fly across the entire Arctic, while the ship carried on north under Visting. Storms kept the would-be transpolar flight grounded through the summer, and Amundsen returned south, leaving Olmdahl in a cabin that they built for the winter. Returning in the summer of 1923, Amundsen witnessed Olmdahl take the Junkers out for a test flight. The engine performed poorly, and a heavy landing on the frozen lake saw the left ski leg collapse, dropping that wing to the ground while the aircraft was still at speed, and the resulting violent ground loop caused considerable damage. They tried to repair the aircraft and reinforce the damaged landing gear, 
but realised it was never strong enough for ski operations in the first place, and it collapsed again during ground testing. Meanwhile, Dahl and Visting made what may constitute the first Arctic flight by a heavier-than-air machine, using the Curtis Oriole. They made two flights, the aircraft wrecking on the second landing. While Amundsen was away in the north, American would-be explorer Edwin Nolte claimed Amundsen stole his idea for a polar flight. He also asserted that Amundsen stole Scott's idea to head to the South Pole. Further fishing for local support, he derided Amundsen's use of American territory as a launching pad for Norwegian territorial claims. Since anyone could come up with the ideas Nolte saw as stolen, and Amundsen never sought to claim the territory he passed over in the Arctic, Nolte's beef with the explorer didn't have a lot of merit, but it did get a lot of newspaper coverage. In 1917, Nolte published a book about Arctic anthropology without ever visiting the Arctic, so I don't give his claims much credence off the bat. He didn't follow up on his claimed desire to fly in the Arctic, but his hoo-ha about territorial claims did contribute to a national mood that set in motion projects that would give Amundsen a run for his money. Junkers circumvented their US representative, John Larison, whom they suspected of selling Amundsen a worn-out example of their F-13 airframe, leading to the crash en route to Seattle, and offered Amundsen a third plane direct from their European operation. But the Norwegian, having been in one accident and witnessing another involving Junkers machines, was sick of their products and refused the offer. Junkers, eager to demonstrate their products weren't as pants as the expedition experience of them might suggest, mounted what was at first slated as a relief expedition, and which then became its own exploration expedition, using the latest Junkers F model, this one mounted on floats for operations from water. This aircraft flew from Spitsbergen in July 1923, making a 6-hour, 1,000km circuit to the north. Amundsen also turned his attention to aircraft that could operate from water. Claude Dornier, his factory operating in Italy due to the strictures of the Versailles Treaty preventing large aircraft manufacture in Germany, was producing flying boats, aircraft with a boat hull for taxiing, takeoff and landing on water, called the Waal. Dornier Waals came off the production line with a wide variety of engines, wingspans and all-up weights but in common, all airframes carrying the name featured a robust hull, sponson stabilizers which looked like small stub wings protruding from the fuselage at the waterline, and a parasol wing with tandem engines mounted on top of the pedestal in a push-me-pull-you arrangement, a design motif that repeats in Dornier's aircraft to the present day. Late model whales were among the first aircraft to fly over large expanses of the Atlantic Ocean. While unable to make the crossing in a single leg, they were flown off catapult ships when within range of their destination or designated refuelling stops, where specially equipped ships would hoist the aircraft aboard, refuel it and catapult it on its way once more, eventually cutting the mail time from Europe to South America from weeks to as little as three days. Amundsen began discussing the purchase of three Waal airframes with Claude Dornier. The hull of Dornier's newest design featured sufficient reinforcing to allow it to take off and land from flat ice. Notice the modifier flat in that sentence. That'll be important later on. Amundsen figured on using one airframe as a tanker to refuel the other two, 
This aircraft then being left behind on the ice as the two refuelled aircraft carried over the pole and on to Alaska. While Amundsen assured his own government that he would plant the Norwegian flag on the ice, US government diplomats began expressing disquiet at the idea of Norwegian claims in the north. Amundsen played a masterstroke in advertising for pilots among US military personnel, selecting Naval Lieutenant Ralph Davison from the 30 applicants. He signed a contract with Dornier for delivery of three airframes in June 1924 for a total of 120,000 US dollars, just as he discovered that his US business agent, Harkon Hammer, was making extravagant claims and payments on his behalf. Hammer headed to South America before the full extent to which he'd fucked Amundsen over financially came to light. With costs still accruing for the Maud, unexpected debts left behind by Hammer, and a contract for more Dornier Wiles than he could afford, Amundsen's career appeared dead in the water. He instructed his brother Leon to sell properties in Norway, but Leon balked, concerned that such sales might leave him with no means by which to realise the unsecured debts his brother owed him. Amundsen lashed out, blaming Leon for not insulating him from such problems, but Leon correctly identified Rold as the means by which Hammer received power of attorney over expedition affairs. Rold didn't like facts getting in the way of his anger, and the two brothers fell out to the point they never spoke again. Estranged from the best financial advisor he ever had, and unable to comprehend the mess of paperwork and networked lies Hammer left in his lap in the USA, Rold Amundsen filed for bankruptcy. Being broke and bunking out on debts legally accrued, albeit disingenuously, in his name, didn't prevent Amundsen living well, somehow taking a room at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. A phone call to his room there on October 8th received a tentative answer, Amundsen eager to dodge disgruntled creditors and summonses. But it turned out to be another twist in his fortunes in the form of the 44-year-old engineer, pilot and only son of mining magnate Lincoln Ellsworth. Ellsworth grew up admiring Wyatt Earp, Teddy Roosevelt and Roald Amundsen. He led some small expeditions in South America, and applied for, but was turned down from, the Maud expedition. But with time and money on his hands, and a stern and distant father to impress, or shake free from, depending on how you read the situation, he approached his Norwegian hero with a proposition. He would fund Amundsen's next expedition, if he could take part in it. The praise and enthusiasm Ellsworth brought to the party bolstered Amundsen's flagging spirits and the money he brought to the party took the pressure off his shitbox financial situation. But there wasn't enough to fund the expedition wholesale. Ellsworth's status as the heir to a great fortune didn't translate into enough fungible wealth to purchase the Dorniers and pay crew. He needed to ask Dad. Dad, James Ellsworth, made his money in Pennsylvania coal mines and didn't think much of his son's wanderlust. He felt particularly unimpressed at the idea of his sole male progeny flying in one of those newfangled aeroma planes over the hostile territory of the Arctic, and he made no bones about it. The junior Ellsworth introduced Amundsen to his father, and the household cachet of the veteran explorer and the common sense approach he mapped out to manage the risks involved in the operation, assuaged some of the senior Ellsworth's concerns, but he still insisted the flight should comprise a pole and back outing from Spitsbergen rather than the transpolar flight the aviators had their hearts set on. He also wanted his son to stop smoking, 
Lincoln agreed he would chuck his pipe and his nicotine ways, and signed an agreement the expedition would not attempt carrying on across the Arctic on reaching the Pole. James Ellsworth's lawyers released $85,000 for the expedition preparations, and later an additional $10,000 for parachutes, because chumps. I think Lincoln Ellsworth would have promised his left testicle to get the expedition moving, and would have stumped up the lump when time for payment came due. But with his father far away from the Arctic, he could smoke and fly over the top of the world as much as he wanted, without interference. A true disciple of Amundsen, that man. Amundsen formed an advisory committee of seven prominent New York business leaders to help damp down public misgivings in the US caused by Edwin Nolte's mouthing off. And the regular press articles deriding his lack of financial acumen gave way to enthusiasm about a new and novel expedition that would pave the way for air travel to Europe via the shortest route, an angle Amundsen cleverly concocted to give the effort some semblance of merit beyond personal aggrandisement. Ellsworth and Amundsen spent the winter planning and preparing, the final draft running to two Dornier Wiles, each crewed by a pilot, a mechanic and an explorer, I guess to act as self-adjusting ballast or something. Oscar Ondal was again selected, joined by Hjalmar Risa Larsen, a Royal Norwegian Naval Air Service Lieutenant. Another Norwegian pilot, Leif Dietrichsen, joined as mechanic, joined in turn by German aircraft engineer Carl Fucht. No sign of US Navy Lieutenant Ralph Davison there, but then a fret. He went on to become a captain, and later a rear admiral, in charge of aircraft carriers during the Second World War. So it's not like his career ended after Amundsen used him as a PR prop. Amundsen sent word to Visting to withdraw the Maud from the north. Amundsen would use ships to position his expeditions, but from here on out he was an airborne rather than a maritime explorer. In another contrast with his past, Amundsen wasn't in complete control of this expedition. While still the leader and the poster boy, Amundsen's financial problems necessitated the expedition be run through a specially instituted company. James Ellsworth, fearing for his son's life as his own health deteriorated, changed his mind about the expedition, threatening to cut off Lincoln Ellsworth's inheritance if the project went ahead. The younger Ellsworth once again disingenuously promised not to make a transpolar flight, and while his father begrudgingly accepted this on face value, he refused to see the expedition off in March 1925. The expedition crew converged in Norway and discussed how to approach their task, a stark contrast with Amundsen's previous MO, in which he mapped out every decision and contingency before he even started assembling his team. He proposed that the two aircraft should fly to the Pole and there split up, one returning to Spitsbergen while the other carried on to Barrow. To Amundsen's immense frustration, this proposal was voted down by the other aircrew, the company structure under which the Ellsworth money funded the project preventing him from stomping his foot and demanding his weight. Everyone else felt the two planes should stick together so that one might come to the other's aid if anything went wrong. Whether they made an out-and-back foray or crossed the continent was moot to most involved, but 5 to 1 deemed it important that the aircraft provide mutual support. It was during this crucial meeting that Risa Larsen mentioned that he heard of an airship coming up for sale at bargain basement price while in Pisa to collect the Dorniers. Amundsen and Ellsworth 
having discussed airships as a possible solution to the distance and engine reliability problems faced by fixed-wing aircraft in the far north, but dismissed them as too expensive, pricked up their ears. At 100,000 US dollars, the machine, built by Italian aviation engineer Umberto Nobile, and which Amundsen once flew in, matched their needs neatly. Just how bargain basement Nobile's asking price constituted becomes clear when you consider Wellman brought his French dirigible for 250,000 US dollars a decade earlier, and that was a two-engine blimp, where Nobile's machine was a three-engine effort with a semi-rigid structure. Ellsworth decided to buy it at the first opportunity, and it was this that set the agenda for the Dorniers. They would fly to the Pole and back this time, and return the following year with Nobile's airship to make their transpolar flight. Amundsen began planning the modifications that would make what he remembered of the machine match the vagaries of Arctic operations. The crew spent weeks waiting for a window in the weather, Risa Larsen and Olmdahl teaching Amundsen and Ellsworth the fundamentals of aerial navigation using a sun compass, which seems a bit late in the piece to shore up such an elemental shortcoming in the aircrew skills. The movement of early aircraft, buffeting around in the lumpy air below 10,000 feet, and the difficulty of discerning a horizon in cloudy skies or in the haze into which the horizon can disappear on even clear days, made airborne astronomical shots with a maritime sextant an exercise in futility. Magnetic compasses are hard to use at high latitudes because of the magnetic variation caused by proximity to the magnetic pole. A sun compass is essentially a reverse sundial. You know the time and use the shadow cast by the sun to make an approximation of your heading relative to the geographic pole. You still need to factor in wind-mediated drift to track your course, so the sun compass doesn't do all the work. But when there's nothing else that will serve, a sun compass is the go-to. Amundsen also spent some time teaching Ellsworth to ski, which also seems like a running to catch up when you're already in Spitsbergen and preparing to fly to the pole sort of effort. Another gap in the preparations was test flying. Dornier produced whales to individual specifications, each machine effectively a bespoke variation on the general theme rather than an exact replica of a Dornier whale platonic form. So data regarding fuel consumption, power settings and flying speeds from other airframes couldn't serve the pilots in making flight plans and assessing their progress against same. They would have to suck it and see a phrase and a concept that holds little appeal in high latitudes or in aviation. On May the 21st, the small number of coal mine employees at Kings Bay gathered along the shoreline to watch the two Dornier whales take off from the sea ice for their 2,500 kilometre round trip. N25, carrying Risa Larsen, Fucht and Amundsen, took off first and circled while N24 got airborne. The second plane found the ice runway harder going and took some violent bumps, springing a number of hull rivets and a fuel leak, which went unnoticed for some time. After eight hours flying, figuring a distance of at least 1,000 kilometres already behind them, Amundsen ordered Risa Larsen to descend and begin looking for a landing site from which to make accurate astronomical observations to determine their next leg. As the two aircraft flew low over icebergs and broken leads in the sea ice, one of N25's engines began to lose power. 
Unable to maintain height on one working engine, Risa Larison was forced to make an emergency landing in a crooked lead of open water, turning the airframe around the bends as the speed washed off and coming to a stop just shy of a big iceberg. A sextant shot from the ice revealed they were actually 150 nautical miles from the pole. Dietrichsen, flying the N24 at the time, circled for 10 minutes trying to assess what happened to the N25 before committing to his own landing. He selected a lagoon some distance from the N25, but it turned out to be deceptively small, and the Dornier's landing run saw the airframe hit sea ice, damaging the hull and wrenching apart the rear engine's exhaust system. Dietrichsen, Ellsworth and Olmdahl jumped from the leaking airframe into a metre of snow on sea ice. Realising the while wasn't sinking as quickly as first feared, they began taking shifts working a pump to counter the leaks and removed as much equipment as they could, setting up a tent and getting a brew on as any sane person would. The following day they climbed the highest available heights, spotting the N25 and its crew some four miles away but separated from them by open leads and rough ice. They worked to get the aircraft clear of the water and out of danger of crushing by the moving ice, and Omdahl tried to get the rear engine serviceable while Ellsworth and Dietrichsen attempted to reach the N25. Deep snow and open leads stymied them, and Dietrichsen experienced snow blindness that confined him to the tent for the day. Two days after landing, the shifting ice brought the N24 and N25 to within two miles of each other, and a very slow process of signalling using flags and a handbook on semaphore, no one knowing the code well enough to just get chatting across the divide, began. After another two days, Omdahl and Dietrichsen declared the N24's engine too badly damaged to run again, the repairs and replacements made to the exhaust system not helping that the cylinder valves were burnt out to the point that the engine couldn't reach a starting compression again. They packed their gear and set out for the N25, all three breaking through the thin ice that formed over the open leads. Omdahl very nearly died as the current below the surface almost drew him from Ellsworth's soggy, desperate reach. Amundsen and Risa Larison came out to meet their colleagues to find them soaked and crawling toward the camp across the treacherously thin ice. They helped the unlucky trio into camp where dry clothes and hot chocolate helped revive them. Amundsen worked out a work, rest, feed roster, and a menu geared to extend the three weeks of full rations they brought with them so as to last a full month. The crew set to, flattening the snow and ice in front of the Dornier to provide a very rough runway. With only an axe and some knives tied to ski stocks for the task, the runway preparation proved dead hard yards, and the men lost condition under the combined effects of the work and the short rations. Unable to clean themselves or sleep well in the constant daylight and ice flow movements, the group became the nearest thing to toasty flotsam any team under Amundsen ever did, but their efforts paid off. They flattened a hundred yards more space than Omdahl figured necessary, and couldn't carry their efforts any further due to a seven metre high ice ridge. On June 15th, they chucked everything not essential to the operation of the aircraft onto the ice trying to lighten the takeoff weight to something manageable in the space available. Risa Larson started the engines and gave them the herbs, and the Dornier began its takeoff run. All six on board alert that they had one shot to get airborne, and that even if they survived a crash on takeoff, 
they were weak and ill-prepared for a 600-mile schlep out to the nearest assistance. The while moved forward with a noise I don't like imagining, gradually gathering speed as the rough runway disappeared behind it. A large divot nearly caused a spill, but Dornier's patented sponson stabilizers did their job keeping the whole deal upright until Risa Larson deemed the airspeed enough to bring the nose up and ease the machine over the 7 metre wall that marked the end of their runway smoothing efforts. All hands gave a hearty cheer and then spent eight and a half nervous hours wondering if the fuel would hold out or if their navigation, reduced to a magnetic compass that couldn't tell anyone anything much at that latitude without rapid fire corrections for variation, would serve to get them all somewhere that they wouldn't die horribly. At the eight and a half hour mark, with half an hour of fuel remaining, they sighted and positively identified the Spitsbergen mountain peaks. Risa Larson then realised they didn't have complete control over the aircraft, the rudder or its linkages having suffered some mishap. You can fly okay with just elevators and ailerons if you have to, but Risa Larson didn't think this would serve to hold the aircraft steady enough for another safe landing on ice. What it might just prove forgiving enough for them all to not die a violent, cartwheeling death. Spying open water on the opposite side of Spitsbergen to Kings Bay, he brought the Dornier down and taxied it to the shore. As Amundsen began contemplating how to trek across the glacier-strewn interior of the island, a sail appeared on the horizon. A sealer, the Siolif, intent on sealing and therefore not noticing the distant men trying to draw its attention. Everyone boarded the whale again and Risa Larsen taxied it out into the Hinlopen Strait to chase their ride back to civilization down. The sealers greeted the grimy, gaunt aviators with the always amusing, You're all supposed to be dead! The sealers took the N25 in tow and returned to Kings Bay, where two ships preparing to head out to search for the missing airmen could stand down. The revenant's return on June the 18th was two weeks too late to get word to James Ellsworth, who died thinking his son perished on the stupid Arctic adventure he'd advised against. The newly super-rich Lincoln Ellsworth headed to the USA to see to his affairs, reaffirming his intention to purchase the Italian airship for the next northern summer as he departed. Amundsen immediately kicked off negotiations with Umberto Nobile for the purchase, inviting the Italian to his home in the Iranian Ball. Something Amundsen hadn't banked on was that the aircraft engineer was a colonel in Mussolini's fascist armed forces and took his allegiance to Il Duce and the fascists very seriously, as anyone who didn't want to end up in prison or dead did so in the fascist state that emerged after Mussolini's march on Rome in 1922. No fan of the fascists, Amundsen still wanted the airship and dealt with the strutting man in the sharply tailored uniform of one of history's least well-thought-out ideologies. Meanwhile, the Maud passed south through the Bering Strait in August 1925 with none of Amundsen's goals kicked, but with huge data sets for Harald Sverdrup to work up in the best model of Arctic Oceanic circulation so far. On docking in Nome on August the 25th, the bailiffs pounced, impounding Amundsen's ship as part of bankruptcy proceedings. The ship was sold on to the Hudson Bay Company for use in resupplying Canadian outposts, being renamed Bay Maud. 
It froze into the sea ice north of Cambridge Bay in 1926 and sank there four years later. A salvage operation seeking to return the hull to Norway raised the wreck onto a barge in 2016 and towed it through the Northwest Passage, reaching Greenland as the 2017 winter set in. It's expected to reach Norway in the 2018 northern summer. Hubert Wilkins approached Amundsen to ask to borrow the N25 Dornier. Needing ready cash to help settle debts, Amundsen only offered to sell the aircraft to Wilkins, which was a pretty gumptious move given it was Ellsworth who actually owned the machine. Wilkins petitioned the Australian government for financial support, but encountered the same blank indifference his previous attempts to get expeditions funded through his homeland received. He couldn't buy the Dornier, and Amundsen wouldn't let him borrow it. On Wilhelmer Stephenson's recommendation, Wilkins took his ambitions to the USA, where his High Latitudes mentor assured him interest in the Arctic was at an all-time high. Wilkins heeded Stephenson's advice and made a deal to sell news coverage of his Arctic adventures to the North American Newspaper Alliance for an advance of $25,000. Wilkins met with members of the Detroit Aviation Society, a small club comprising some of the richest and most innovative names in the rise of the car industry that transformed a stove manufacturing trading port on the Great Lakes into the Motor City. The Australian received his introduction into this rarefied network of money and industrial leadership through the head of the American Geographical Society, Isaiah Bowman, who met Wilkins through Stephenson, who retained a great deal of cachet in the USA in spite of the various catastrophes he wrought on Arctic exploration. The Detroit cohort liked Wilkins and agreed to support an attempt to discover land in the Arctic for a year. Wilkins expressed to his friend Herbert Smith at the British Museum his disappointment that he would act on the behalf of the USA rather than the British Empire, but with the British Empire slowly deflating like a souffle that's been over or undercooked, temperamental piece of crap dish that the souffle is, and his own nation unlikely to fund his projects so long as Douglas Mawson held any sway, the US hankering for their own misguided imperial adventures would have to serve his needs. Explorers gonna explore. Distinct from other projects aiming at the geographic pole, for the plaudits that would attend reaching that non-arbitrary but also non-useful goal, Wilkins aimed his project at the Pole of Inaccessibility, the point furthest from any human habitation, figuring any land lying hidden in the north would lie far from anywhere people ventured out from or to. Wilkins sacrificed potential notoriety and applause for the actual work of geographic exploration, trying to find something in an otherwise unknown space and with no guarantee that the thing he sought actually existed, and therefore risking ignominious success if he did survive but didn't find a continent to the north of Alaska. The Detroit Aviation Society agreed to stump up $100,000, so with Wilkins' stake of $15,000 and the $25,000 from the North American Newspaper Alliance, Wilkins looked well set to succeed. The members of the Detroit Aviation Society wouldn't tolerate failure, committee member, Edsel Ford, eager that American efforts should triumph at the North Pole one way or another, also put some of his money into backing Richard Evelyn Bird, and encouraged other industrialists, John D. Rockefeller Jr., Vincent Astor, Rodman Wanamaker, and Dwight Morrow among them, to do likewise. Handsome, charming, backstabbing, gaslighting, Richard Bird's Virginia plantation antecedents 
bred a lineage of governors and senators, and the family connections ensured even a football injury that broke his foot badly enough that it never healed properly and left the young ensign bird unable to stand long watches on a ship's bridge. Even on the fancy bridge, his family connections saw him into aboard the yacht of the Secretary of the Navy, and then that of President Woodrow Wilson, didn't curtail his career. Bird sought pilot training, seeing aircraft as a means to continue with the Navy without needing to stand for long periods on his injured foot, and after a brief retirement from duty due to his injury, graduated from a Naval Aviators course in Pensacola in 1917. Never rated highly as a pilot, Bird claimed his real forte in the air lay in navigation. Biographies note him as having contributed to the development of the bubble sextant, a combination sextant and spirit level allowing measurement of the angle between an astronomical object and the horizon when clouds, haze or darkness obscured that horizon from the observer in an aircraft, and the drift indicator, an instrument that helped aviators measure the horizontal component of their track due to crosswinds and account for such deviations in their dead reckoning calculations. Some people state he invented the instruments, but I think it more likely he helped refine them at best. I don't think Richard Bird ever had an original thought or inspired imagining. The doubly vague, contributed to its design phrasing, came from Bird himself, and I think he was eager to let people think he'd done the hard yards, while offering himself deniability if anyone else involved challenged his actual role in the inventive process. It's a linguistic telltale that's dishearteningly familiar to me, but I'll go into that later when I know you better, if I think I can trust you with that sort of information. Those who flew with him on his big ticket flights didn't rate Bird's navigation that highly anyway, so he must have been a thoroughly indifferent pilot. In 1919, the US Navy became involved in an unofficial race to cross the Atlantic by air, and Bird, recognized it good at bureaucracy and logistics, or at least good at knowing the naval and political shakers and movers who were good at those things, was placed in charge of getting shit done. He did an alright job of organising a fleet of four Curtis flying boats and a fleet of ships to act as waypoint markers and fuel depots. Bird did his best to finagle a spot on one of the aircraft, but with all Atlantic crossing seats highly prized by career officers denied active duty by the disappointingly short war, he only received permission to travel with them as far as Newfoundland. Waiting for good weather at Trepassi, the Navy contingent were joined by aircraft piloted by Alcock and Brown, Sopwith's test pilot and namesake of the company Sopwith became after shrugging off bankruptcy, Harry Hawker, and another naval contingent intending to fly the Atlantic in a US Navy airship. Bird tried to talk his way aboard the Navy airship, but it blew out to sea with no one on board, as airships are wont to do because they're crap. Hawker had to ditch in the Atlantic and was picked up by a trawler. Alcock and Brown flew their Vickers Vimy to Ireland and one of the US Navy Curtis flying boats made it to Lisbon. True to the spirit of exploration and pioneering routes, the British applauded Alcock and Brown because they crossed the Atlantic non-stop, where the US effort had to land and wait out crook weather and America applauded the US Navy effort because they made it all the way to continental Europe and not some island off the coast of a slightly larger island. I digress, but you already knew that. I noticed the phenomenon a long time ago because aviation is full of caveats by which people proudly herald their, or their aircraft's, achievements. Record time to height, 
Record time to height with a given loading. Record time to height with a given load on one of those days where it feels like it might rain at any minute, but it just doesn't, and you know how that affects your takeoff run, and so on. I think aviation probably holds the record for the most records per unit effort of any human endeavour, but having noticed the pattern for celebrations of record levels of minutiae in aviation, the equivalent pattern for splitting hairs in polar merit stood out like record-breaking dog's bollocks when I started reading Antarctic history in earnest in preparation for making this series. The first to reach the Antarctic Circle, the first to sight Antarctica, the first to set foot on Antarctica, the first to spend a winter on Antarctica, the first to reach the Polar Plateau, the first to reach the South Geographic Pole, the first to reach the South Magnetic Pole, the first to cross the Antarctic Continent, the first to cross the Antarctic Continent unaided, the firsts keep coming more than a century after William Spears Bruce pronounced Amundsen's 1912 achievement as leaving Antarctica free of such fripperies, celebrating that people would finally get on with their science without grandstanding or headline-seeking. I recall around ten years ago reading some online promotional material about the bipolar expedition, in which two expedition leaders would take a team comprising people with bipolar disorder to the North and the South Geographic Poles to raise awareness of bipolar disorder. I didn't hear anything else about it after an initial flurry of articles, and I hope that's because someone pulled the plug before they got moving, and not because everyone died horribly. The number of permutations available to challenge yourself in extreme environments isn't infinite, but it's not small either, and I suspect people will keep adding caveats and strictures to their high latitudes operations, because until we get off the planet, there's a large number of unfulfilled monkeys getting about trying to prove themselves, but finding fewer new horizons as time passes, they have to keep inventing the horizons they're trying to surpass. I figure we're only a couple of decades away from seeing the levels of awareness raised by the various adventurers using good courses, trademarked, as the footing on which they base their calls for funding, reach critical levels. Spilling off the continental margin and joining the plastic circulating in the Great Pacific Garbage and Awareness Patch. In the radio series version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams posited that because people pull off their greatest achievements when facing great adversity, people facing little or no adversity would need to generate artificial adversity to bring out their best. This took the form of crisis bands, electronic bracelets worn on the wrist and capable of generating artificial crisis fields ranging from sprained thumb to, quick, they're after us. Such technology remains the realm of science fiction, but in its absence, people have generated their own artificial challenges. Setting out across the polar plateau using recreated heroic era clothing and gear has a certain appeal to me, and I encourage anyone interested in such matters to look to the work of Maximilian and the Shackleton Mountaineering Challenge, but I don't see such projects as something I would do for fun. Another science fiction author, I think it was Kim Stanley Robinson, put the concept in the mouth of one of his characters, who recounts having worked in the misery tourism industry, recreating the travails of past explorers for those rich punters who romanticise suffering in ways that would make Sir Clements proud, and I'm not sure Robinson's writing will remain hyperbolic for long. I hear the small voices, and they're currently telling me that with the centenary of Lester and Bagshaw's winter at Waterboat Point fast approaching, I should build a decrepit waterboat to transport south and spend a winter in it, to raise awareness of all the surplus awareness piling up in the south in the wake of all these awareness raising expeditions. Another long one. You'd think I'm all old and shit, and new reading glasses might help reinforce that idea. 
Richard Byrd contributed to the stymieing of the establishment of a United States Air Force, testifying at the court-martial of Billy Mitchell, who successfully demonstrated the capacity of aircraft to sink ships, and in doing so invoked the ire of everyone else in the US military, who came down on him like a ton of spurious bricks. Byrd bragged about his role in Mitchell's court-martial for insubordination in his book Skyward. Though it took a long time, Mitchell's ideas were eventually vindicated in spite of the best efforts of jealously territorial pricks such as Byrd and his superiors, but that's another story for another podcast other than to note that Byrd cashed in on the cachet generated by his role in nixing Mitchell's initiative by finagling a promotion to lieutenant, the Navy pressing Congress to pass a special bill to that effect. Like Wilkins, Byrd was slated to fly aboard the R-38 airship during its delivery transit across the Atlantic. A tardy start, a missed train, late arrival at Howden, and Byrd missed his opportunity to die horribly in the Humber River. Both Byrd and Wilkins attributed their brush with death to a higher power preserving their life for later greatness, which is some Bass Ackwards arrogant as fuck thinking on both their behalves. Maybe if they'd both flown aboard and died aboard the R-38, the people left on the ground in their stead could have gone on to do more interesting or important things, but we won't ever know because things happened the way they happened. Fuck anyone who points at another's demise as vindicating their own survival. We are unique, but since everyone's unique, that means no one's special, and hindsight bias and self-adoration don't justify shitting on anyone else's grave. Man. Digressions are just coming thick and fast today, aren't they? You know what it is? I don't like Richard Byrd. That's probably it. Greetings this episode to Colleen Miller, who is awesome. Take care and appreciate your coffee and get off my lawn, you kids. Oh, fuck me, I'm all old and shit.